Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies, part of the New Books Podcast Network. I'm Peter Bergman, and today we're talking to Derek Pensler about his new book, Theodore Herzl, The Charismatic Leader. The book, to quote from Yale University Press's introduction, draws on the vast body of Herzl's personal, literary, and political writings, and shows that Herzl's path to Zionism had as much to do with personal crises as it did with anti-Semitism. Once Herzl devoted himself to Zionism, he distinguished himself as a consummate leader, possessed of indefatigable energy, organizational ability, and electrifying charisma. Herzl became a screen onto which Jews of his era could project their deepest needs and longings. Derek Pensler, congratulations on the publication of your book and welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. I suppose a good place to begin would be to ask you why we need a new biography of Herzl in the first place. I guess we could ask the same question about Churchill or Mao Zedong or Stalin or Lincoln or Washington. That is, great leaders um, attract biographies. People are interested in them. And it's not just that people like to write biographies. It's also that we do need new biographies of great people. Uh, Really, every, I would say, 10, 20, 30 years, the way that we think about the past changes radically. It is um, counterintuitive. But the first rule from we learn from studying history is that everything changes. And it's not just that the present changes, it's the past changes as well. Things that of previous generations simply took for granted, we might challenge and vice versa. And it's actually been rather a while since we had a uh, biography of Herzl. Uh, there have been books that focus on his thought or one aspect or another of his life. But a real live biography, it's been about 30 years. And it was a very fine biography. By, uh, by Ernest Pavel, a book called The Labyrinth of Exile, and it was a wonderful book. Um, one problem is that Pavel um, did not know Hebrew or Yiddish. He was very much immersed in Central European letters, which is great. But uh, I don't think you can really understand Herzl without appreciating his dialogic relationship with his following. That's why the book is called The Charismatic Leader. It's all about a man who really is defined by Uh, and defines himself in terms of his following. So that's a new approach, uh, and it's also an approach that really requires, I'd say, more grounding in Jewish history, and not only in Central European history and literature. And that's something I've tried to bring to the biography, which was not present in that otherwise wonderful biography, or in the even more famous biography uh, by Amos Alam, in the mid-1970s, Alon certainly knew Hebrew, he was Israeli, but he was cold to um, distant from the world, really, of Eastern European Jewry, of the Eastern European Jewish Enlightenment, and from Judaism. And uh, one does have to know something about, about what Judaism meant to these people to understand the transition to their adoration for, for Herzl. So just suffice it to say, I think we needed a more holistic biography, we needed one that reflects his relationship with his masses, with his uh, with his supporters, and then that way I hope to add something that the previous biographies uh, had not. Very good. You've mentioned to me in the past that some people are more interested in Herzl the man 
while others are more interested in Herzl the leader. And throughout the book, I notice that you go to great pains to reconcile these two Herzls. You paint really such a rich picture of this sometimes heroic and at other times tragic figure and enable the reader to immerse him or herself rather effortlessly in Herzl's various worlds. But certainly, it occurred to me that this was not such an easy task for the author. So I suppose I would like to know that given the vastness of Herzl's output, how did you go about the kind of distillation process for what you might include in the biography and how might you and how you might frame it? That's an interesting question about how you choose your sources. Mm -hmm. And I think I'll answer it first by talking about a kind of conceptual framework, which is um, what are you looking for? In those sources. So, for example, uh, you know, I mentioned differences between older and newer biographies of Herzl. Older biographies of Herzl, I mean, really old ones, going back into the earlier to mid twentieth century, focused very heavily on him as a a Zionist, a great Jewish leader, a great Zionist leader, and they focused on things that he wrote in that vein. And then you get uh, later biographies that were, to their credit, more interested in him as a man, as a rather flawed and difficult and and troubled man. And they would focus more on some of his personal writings. So in a way, what you choose in terms of sources is dictated by what you're looking for. Now, the problem in my case is I was looking for everything because I wanted to write a holistic biography. I was also trying to transcend hagiography, which is often um, produced in biographies of great leaders of national movements. And some of the early biographies of Herzl suffered from that. I wanted to transcend that, but I also wanted to transcend a kind of a, um, I don't know, revisionist uh, uh, focus on foibles and flaws alone. And so I didn't want to only read private writings where we see Herzl at his weakest or at his least pleasant. So it meant, first of all, you know, I mentioned these biographies. I did have to read the standard biographies carefully. That helps. But, you know, a good historian is, is nothing without primary sources. So uh, Herzl himself created a bit of a trap for historians in that he documented his life well, uh, a bit too well. That is, he wrote um, a political diary that amounts to about, I don't know, maybe 1,500 pages in English, which is beautifully written, filled with colorful dialogue. It's absolutely enchanting. And so on one level, any scholar has to read it, but you realize as you're reading it that he wrote this knowing, and he even wrote this at the beginning of the diaries, that they would be published someday, and that he wanted the world to appreciate his greatness and how much he had suffered. That's Herzl's writing, not mine. Those are his words. So it, it's an essential source, but you have to read it against the grain. And so that's just where you start. Then there's Herzl's Zionist writings, which actually weren't that much. I mean, he gave speeches, he wrote essays, it fills a couple of volumes. It's not that much. The more difficult part is when you get to Herzl the man, uh, or Herzl the non-Zionist leader. Uh, you know, most of his waking hours were not spent working on Zionism. He was a professional journalist, and um, to get into that world to read his journalistic pieces, yes, that takes time. Uh, many of his journalistic pieces have been gathered and published in the German original <clears throat> or in um, Hebrew uh, translation. So a lot of it's available, and I read it. Um, some of his unpublished writings from his youth, diaries, no, no, little notes on one thing or another have been published. And that's, but it's all manageable. The most difficult thing to deal with in terms of quantity is the correspondence, because there are thousands and thousands of letters. And I don't think any biographer has gone through all 6,000 extant letters. I could not read 6,000 letters. 
What I did do, though, is I went through a lot of them. And I worked with research assistants, and we picked like the top 20 or so people with whom Herzl, I suspected, would have had close relationships, um, revealing relationships. And we focused on those letters. So I can't say we read all 6,000, but we read an awful lot of them. And we see patterns emerging. And then in one case in particular, I wanted to trace not just what Herzl wrote to a certain person, but what that person wrote back to him. And so I focused quite heavily on um, Max Nordau, who was himself a major cultural figure in the late 19th century and a, a lieutenant or a kind of ally of Herzl's. And Nordau's letters to Herzl, which are sitting in the Central Zionist Archive in Jerusalem, are extremely revealing. Uh, but to also just answer your question in one final sentence, it did take me quite a bit longer to write this book than I thought would be the case. And it's precisely because there was more source material than I thought, you know, uh, what I'd, I'd originally deal with, and because it was so fascinating and and interesting. So, um, you know, historians uh, tend to write slowly. It's, it's it's a lot faster to dash off a book where um, where you don't have to do this much research. Herzl was certainly a complicated figure psychologically, and as you've alluded already at the beginning of the book, you relate Herzl's kind of modified retelling of his family's background later on, how he re- recast his original, more innocuous report of the first Dreyfus trial in December 1894, five years after the fact, in an 1899 essay that claimed that it was this event that made Herzl a Zionist. And towards the end, Herzl's retelling of his arrival in Jerusalem, ill with fever at the onset of the Sabbath. All of these events betray a deeper psychological need in Herzl, I would say. How do you explain this? And was Herzl any different from other historical figures in this respect? Well... I guess the real question is, is he different from any human being in this respect? Because mm. we all we all fabricate, we all misremember, we all uh, fashion ourselves. And so the question is sort of what's the balance between those, those actions? Um, first of all, there are times where we just honestly misremember something. And it is totally possible that when Herzl wrote in 1899 about how the Dreyfus trial made him into a Zionist, it's, it's actually possible he believed it that way. It's, I can't prove it. It is certainly possible that he was fabricating it in order to attach his becoming a Zionist to what had become a cause celebre that was ripping France apart. And, and, and that really raised the status of Zionism because it raised it to the status of, of, of the world stage. So it is possible that Herzl was just fabricating it. On the other hand, <clears throat> people do remember things differently. The fact is that he had just finished his play, The New Ghetto, a few weeks before Dreyfus's trial or arrest was um, was publicized in the French press. He he may have conflated the two in his memory. Herzl did something very similar where he would conflate the dates of the death of his sister with a young woman he loved when he was young. And I don't think this was fabrication. I think Herzl actually misremembered the dates of the death because for Herzl, who was complicated, his sister, whom he loved in a rather odd way, and this young woman, Magda Herz, whom he also loved, they were all sort of combined together. Uh, That's not fabrication. That's just um, misremembering, but obviously with a, uh, a deep, deep psychological meaning. There are times where uh, Herzl did fabricate, but he was not unusual. So in fabricating a a distinguished Sephardic lineage, which Herzl did, this was something lots of Central European Jews did 
in the late 19th century. It was, it was considered fashionable to be of Sephardic origin. It had a kind of pedigree, or in Yiddish we would say yichas, uh, that, that Ashkenazic Jews did not, uh, at least Central European Jews often, did not attribute to themselves and their own ancestors. Uh, so he was, he was hardly alone in doing that sort of thing. But you, know, you mentioned Herzl's entry to Jerusalem when he was in Palestine in 1898 and he was very ill. Uh, the fact is that Herzl talks about this quite honestly in his diary. He doesn't fabricate anything. He he writes, I was sick. I felt awful. I really wanted to take a carriage to the hotel, but I was with these Orthodox Jews and they were upset about it. So I had to walk all the way to the hotel. It's actually other people who made up a story in the years after that Herzl insisted on walking to the hotel despite his fever to make him seem like not only a, a great observant Jew, which he was not, but also to um, to impress upon the readers his his sense of um, of sacrifice. So we have Herzl himself, you know, fabricating, misremembering. But then the even more interesting story are the legends about him that began to grow in his own lifetime and especially afterwards. Um, all kinds of crazy stories of things that Herzl never said or never did, uh, but that are attributed to him because he quickly became a symbol, um, you know, something more than just a regular flesh and blood uh, human being. Right. That's very interesting. Um, he was certainly a complicated man, and, and he also, I would say, had a complicated relationship with his wife, Julie, which is, I would say, well known. But what your book really brought out, and which I think is a rather new angle, was the very close relationship that Herzl had with his parents. And I wonder if you could comment on both of these phenomena a little. It's, it's a funny thing that uh, previous biographers have noted, yes, Herzl had a bad relationship with Julie. It, it was a complicated one. And there's a problem with sources in that we have Herzl's side of the story. We have um, you know, his letters, uh, but we don't have her letters. Right. She entrusted her letters to her daughter, uh, Trudy, Gertrude. Trudy went off to Terezin, uh, Theresienstadt during World War II and was murdered there and the letters disappeared. So we might be only hearing one side of the story, but from accounts, not only Herzl, but also Herzl's friends and colleagues, all of whom, by the way, are male. So one wonders about male bias here. According to them, Julie was, um, well, you know, to use their language, hysterical, which is a common way of, you know, being critical of women, particularly at that time. But she seemed to have been psychologically unstable. She was a spendthrift. She and Herzl simply should not have gotten married. She had no interest in Zionism. She wanted to be married to a famous journalist who would entertain, you know, famous people. She did not want to um, be hanging out with uh, East European Jews of, uh, you know, low income and uh, little prestige. She simply could not share his dream. Uh, and she and he fought like cats and dogs from the very beginning, which I do go into in some length, not to be salacious, but um, unhappy human beings can use that unhappiness for greatness. I think truly happy, well-adjusted people rarely achieve political greatness because political leaders often hunger. They just, they, they, they hunger for approval and for love and they hunger for a cause uh, and they feel like they have a calling. And if a person is just immersed in domestic uh, tranquility, then that th th that might be enough for them. So in that sense, Herzl was not all that unusual among great leaders. Um, 
not, I mean, many great leaders have had good marriages, but the, the sense that there's something fundamentally unhappy about them, that they're unhappy people is not unusual. As far as his parents go, yes, his parents were his rock. Um, Herzl never really grew up in some ways. He, uh, he was so attached to his father that when Herzl was in his early 30s and got a contract from the most prestigious newspaper in German-speaking Europe to be a, a, its Paris correspondent, it was his father who negotiated the terms of the contract. And Herzl was a man of 31 years old. He really could have yeah. taken care of this himself. Uh, Jacob Herzl was, by all accounts, a genial, decent man, uh, did not have the wit uh, of his son, but absolutely adored him, supported him financially, indulged him, even spoiled him. The two of them were uh, very close. And Jacob died just right before the publication of Herzl's novel, Old Newland, uh, 1902, and Herzl was devastated. But he was devastated in a rather selfish way that suggests that he never really grew up. He wrote in his diary, you know, I'm so upset my father won't get to read this novel or something. He won't, he won't get to see it published. It was, uh, it was all about him. Uh, but he did love Jacob very much. And I actually found an autographed letter of Herzl's in a private archive here in Toronto, where I am now. There's a man who has an amazing collection of, of Herzliana. And it's a letter that's in response to a, a condolence letter that someone wrote to Herzl. And Herzl writes, um, I have lost my only true friend. And um, I, he, he meant it. He really meant it. Herzl's relationship with his mother was more complicated. She was a difficult woman, demanding, brilliant, sharp, harsh, and uh, uh, zealously overprotective. And I think he he was really tied to her apron strings. And she was she made life miserable for Julie. I mean, the classic mother-in-law, daughter-in-law dynamic, writ large. And right. Herzl insisted on dragging his parents along to live with him and Julie when they went to Paris. So you can imagine Julie is looking forward to living in Paris and entertaining, and there's mom and dad to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. It was, it was hellish. So um, yes, he was very close to his parents. He could never confide in Julie, ever, uh, the way he confided in them. He wrote so many letters to them in which he goes on in great detail about every aspect of his life, and they adored him. And of course, what it comes down to is that parents are a source of unconditional love, uh, I don't think Herzl ever really saw them as um, people in their own right until after his father's death and Herzl realized that he was going to have to take care of his mother. And what he does is he immediately seizes upon the um, sort of second in command in the Zionist organization, David Wolfson, and tries to get him to agree to take care of his mom. I mean, it's sort of he's, he's going to find someone else to take care of. So, yeah, he never really grew up. He remained a boy, as it were, uh, very much dependent upon his parents. And uh, uh, with Julie, you know, the relationship was not great. And then he was also an absent father. He loved his children, but he was never there for them. So he was a complicated guy. I would say also Herzl's connection to Judaism, the Jewish question, and its successful resolution were also not straightforward issues. And his relationship to all of these underwent serious revision throughout his short life. How much of this change would you say was due to, let's say, practical reasons, and how much to his individual psychology? It's a really interesting question because the standard view of Herzl is that this is a man who is thrown into a world in which um, anti-Semitism becomes rampant, 
through the Dreyfus affair on the one hand and the rise of political anti-Semitism in Austria and Germany, epitomized by the uh, ascendancy of Karl Weger to, um, to, to, to being mayor of, of, of Vienna. And on one level, that's true. Herzl was exposed to anti-Semitism and it bothered him deeply. And it's one of the factors that led him to become a Zionist. But the problem is that uh, the overwhelming majority of Jews in his environment in Budapest, where he grew up, in Vienna, where he lived after that, in Paris, where he lived, you know, most Jews were exposed to anti-Semitism. And yet very few became Zionists. And even fewer devoted their entire lives to this, at that time, a new and often considered outlandish idea. So anti-Semitism is a necessary precondition, but it's hardly a sufficient one. And so we have to look at internal causes. And uh, this is where we see a man who is uh, searching for something. He is not not Jewish. That is, it's impossible to grow up in the late 19th century or mid 19th century in Budapest and Vienna and not know that you're Jewish. Of course, he knew he was Jewish. He went to a Jewish day school when he was little. He learned rudimentary Hebrew. He went to synagogue sometimes with his father. But that's not really what his turn to Zionism was about. It was about a man who was hollow on the inside, who was looking for a purpose or a goal to give his life meaning. He had wanted to be a successful playwright. And he wrote decent plays, but not great ones. He did not, it's funny, he had the ambition to be a great artist, but he didn't have the talent to be a great artist. And he didn't have the burning desire to represent the world in a new way. He didn't have the, uh, he didn't have the soul of an artist. So his plays were flat drawing room comedies. And although he had some success with them, it wasn't what he wanted. He wanted to be successful. He even wrote this. I'm not attributing anything to him or, or reading anything in. He writes quite explicitly in his diaries how, how much he hungers for success uh, and how depressed he is when he doesn't have it. Journalism um, did not give him the the success that he craved, although he was extremely successful. He was the highest paid member of the staff of the Neue Freie Presse, his newspaper in Vienna. He wrote um, brilliant political correspondence from, from Paris. Then he became the newspaper's literary editor. Uh, he was a wonderful journalist, and yet he got very little satisfaction from it. So this is a man looking for something that will make him great, and he's not finding it. And anti-Semitism in the 1890s is growing. And so I think there's a perfect storm of a man who's craving success, who is, he is bedeviled by anti-Semitism. There's no question about it. And he has a miserable marriage and he doesn't really have friends and he's looking for something. And add to all of this, the fact that he was psychologically unstable. And he was given to fits of depression. And so it appears some level of mania. And I say that with caution because I'm not a psychotherapist. I did consult with psychiatrists as well as medical doctors when I wrote the book. They read the manuscript. I was very careful not to make claims that would be outrageous. But in the spring of 1895, he experienced several months of frenzied writing, often writing things that seem to our, from our vantage point today, to be quite mad. Um, he wasn't sleeping. 
He was full of energy and it seems to be manic. And he wrote hundreds of pages of stuff that was often nonsense, sometimes quite lucid. And out of that fog came the material for his pamphlet, The Jewish State of 1896. So Herzl's a complicated man who is searching for something. He is trying to find a solution, I think, to problems in his own life. He is concerned about anti-Semitism. He falls upon the idea of him being the leader of a movement to lead the Jews to their new Jewish homeland. And again, with him as the leader, it's not just that he's going to write a pamphlet and, and leave it to others. He will be the Moses figure. He will be the great leader because that's what he needs. So precisely um, because of this, I would say, or in spite of, or be even because of his complicated psychology, Herzl, as you say, possessed no small amount of charisma, both as a person and perhaps more importantly, as a leader. And you do go into great detail in the book to make the reader aware of this fact. And indeed, the book's subtitle underscores this phenomenon. So it might seem like a given, but I wonder if we'd be talking about Herzl in the same terms that we do today, if his leadership was bereft of such a charisma. No, he wouldn't have. I agree with you completely. He wouldn't have gone anywhere. And that's, that's the other part of the story that on the one hand, yes, he's a man with these internal complications and internal drives that I've just talked about. But that would be meaningless in terms of historical impact if he hadn't had other things going on. That he was extremely intelligent. He did have an indefatigable work ethic. He was a great organizer. He was a great communicator. He wrote beautifully. He had a way with words, but even that doesn't scratch the surface. Herzl had charisma. If he had not had the, a, a radiating, a radiant charisma, we wouldn't be talking about him now. He was taller than average, but not a giant. He was extremely handsome, certainly by the standards of his era. And I think by any standards, he was a very handsome man. He grew a uh, luxuriant beard in the early 1890s. And there's nothing unusual about a man of his era having a beard uh, or having a long beard. Lots of men had beards. His was particularly <clears throat> rich and long, but it was the combination of the beard, his olive complexion, uh, and his eyes. He had the eyes of a charismatic. They were deep, dark, soulful, uh, somewhat sunken. And he, he looked sad all the time. And this was something that, and I think he was sad much of the time. And his inner sadness is, uh, was actually a source of his greatness. There, there's a psychiatrist uh, at Tufts University who's written, an, I think, a very interesting book about the relationship between depressive tendencies uh, or manic depressive tendencies and great political leadership, as long as the leader is not too manic or too or depressive. Because the person who's a bit depressive and a bit manic can connect with people. People can look at that person's face and say, oh my God, she or he understands me. They understand my suffering. And then when they're in their more manic or more energetic uh, phase, that energy just overwhelms the, 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 the following. It overwhelms the masses and makes them feel uh, uh, electrified. It makes them feel alive. This is what Herzl was able to do. There, there's two kinds of great charismatic politicians. They're the ones who make you feel like you're their best friend. Uh, I've met such people. Uh, I personally never met President Clinton, but I was told that Bill Clinton had that same 
uh, capacity. You, he would spend five minutes with you and you'd say, oh my God, this man really loves me. And, and if he loves me, then I must be lovable because he's this great person. And that's one kind of charisma. The other kind of charisma is, is someone who's more distant and just fills you with awe and wonder and, and hope and positive feelings. Uh, and, and you really see this person as a almost larger than life figure, as, as, as a divine figure. And this is Herzl. He was the second type of charismatic. He made people feel hopeful. He made people feel good about themselves, but, but really good about their, their possibilities um, for the future of the Jewish people. So yes, charisma is something that can't be you know, gained. It can't be learned. Uh, I think he had it even when he was a young man. Uh, and he offered something that a lot of people in the world at that time wanted. Um, he, he was the leader they were looking for. And, and, that's, the, and that's why charisma is, is dialogic. It only exists if somebody wants a charismatic leader to lead them. And Herzl came around at just the right time when there were Jews in Central and Eastern Europe, at least some Jews, enough of them, who were looking for a charismatic leader. And they found him. Yet this charismatic leadership, or Herzl as a charismatic leader, really was his uh, came later in life for him. His first success really came as a journalist, and less so as a playwright, which, as you've mentioned already, was his first choice. And more to the point, and you note this in the book, as a, a feuilletonist, um, he achieved success in a journalistic genre that he did not particularly respect. Yet he not only made this work, but achieved considerable celebrity with his feuilletons. So how do you how do you assess this relationship between Herzl's professional success and his failure? It's it's interesting that there are people who are uh, scholars of say fin de siècle Central European belles lettres who are interested in Herzl not as a Zionist. They're interested in him as a journalist and as the literary editor of the Neue Freie Presse. He was a man of mark. This is a man who, when he was the Paris correspondent of the newspaper met Proust. He met Clemenceau. Clemenceau thought the world of, um, of Herzl. This was a man who projected greatness. And journalists interview everyone. You know, if you're a political leader, you want to get interviewed. So he knew everyone. Uh, but he also had, I, I mentioned previously, he had real journalistic talent. Although Herzl did not understand people very well, he knew how to describe a situation. He could he could write a feuilleton. Feuilletons were like long observational journalistic pieces that could describe an event, a place. It could be a piece of short fiction. It could be lots of different things. Herzl was great at setting a, setting a tableau, a kind of tableau vivant. He would describe a situation. He could tell a charming little story. Uh, he could write an essay about a political event in the Chambre des Députés, in the in the um, Chamber of Deputies in in, uh, in 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 France. He could he he had a gift for that sort of thing. No, he didn't respect it very much because he wanted to be great. He wanted to create something. He didn't want to merely describe things, and this is why his journalism did not satisfy him. But he was in fact a marvelous journalist. Now, what's interesting for us, as now today looking back at Herzl is his feuilletons are not just good journalism. They're often very revealing about his social thought, his political thought, his views about women. He certainly had problems with women in his life. He was more than a bit of a misogynist. He had some real issues there. Uh, you get to really know him as a human being through his journalism, 
when you combine that with his Zionist writings, because he was often producing the two simultaneously, then you get a much fuller picture of who he was. So you really have to read the journalism, which often has absolutely nothing to do with Jews, to get a fuller sense of, of what he was. Uh, and some of his literary work was actually quite good. Every now and then he wrote very nice short stories. So the, the journalism is very much a part of uh, very much a part of the story, even if Herzl himself didn't respect it. Okay. Yeah, um, your book makes very, very clear that, again, Herzl's personal and psychological shortcomings aside, he was not only a pragmatist, but highly organized. And as such, it seemed to me he was very, very similar to his other great Jewish Habsburg contemporary, Gustav Mahler. You know, if you read Mahler's personal letters from around the exact same time, he comes across similarly to Herzl as highly neurotic, narcissistic, paranoid, and really psychologically very immature. But to have created to the degree and intensity that both men did, and to have led their respective organizations, I mean, Herzl, the Zionist organization, Gustav Mahler, the, the Vienna Court Opera, with the success that they did, both men must have been much shrewder and much more organized than many biographers make them out to be. That's a wonderful um, observation. The, the question is to what extent this is simply a, a matter about leadership as such, mm-hmm. and to what extent it's specific to Fantasiecle Vienna and that particular world. I think that there was a particular type of, um, certainly the misogyny of his era, there, there, there was something going on in Herzl that, uh, I mean, w- whatever problems we have in our own era, I think that we're much more self-aware, we're much more concerned about issues involving misogyny now than we were, say, 100 years ago in Central Europe. Other issues about Herzl's personality, you know, I think are kind of typical of great artists and great leaders. They're often people who are notoriously narcissistic and self-centered and hungry. They're hungry for approval. They're hungry for love. Uh, They have talent. If they don't have talent, we never hear of them. I think there are lots of people out there who have the same personality defects, but they don't have the talents. They have the aspirations, but not the talents. So we don't, we don't know about them. So it's precisely the organizational ability, the hunger, the talent, the charisma, in the case of Mahler, the artistic genius, in the case of Herzl, the organizational genius, um, that makes them effective. But at the same time, the narcissism, the immaturity, the paranoia, these are the things that that motivate them into working 24-7. And if they have just the right combination of talent and ability and charisma, then they rise to the very top. If they don't, we never hear from them. It's a good point, too. I would, it just occurred to me when you were saying that, that, in fact, both of these men worked themselves to death. I mean, Mahler was 50 when he died. Herzl was 44, I believe. So so very, very similar um, and tragic stories. Um, in, in Herzl's final work, Os Neuland, we see his utopian vision for the Jewish state as a European cultural outpost in the ancient Jewish homeland. And throughout the book, we see various European cities, especially Paris and Vienna, but perhaps also Basel and London even, play a role in the book. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about these other kind of relationships in Herzl's life and the function of Europe in his Zionist vision. Herzl was a great European. uh, And he wasn't really purely a Viennese or purely Hungarian. He was bilingual from almost from birth. He learned, he went to a classical gymnasium. He had perfect French as well as Greek and Latin from an early age. 
he never really mastered English, but his English was decent, and he was a quite an Anglophile. He learned decent Italian. His Italian was good enough for him to have a long conversation with the king of Italy entirely in Italian, and then to write much of his diary entries in Italian to prove to himself and to his readers how good his Italian was. So this is a man who was a quintessential cosmopolitan European. He came of age in Paris, which Walter Benjamin described as the capital of the 19th century. Uh, he loved his native Vienna, or not native Vienna, but his second home of Vienna. He was at home in many languages and cultures. And he writes in his uh, diaries that in the Jewish state, we will have all the comforts of home, uh, cured meat, pretzels, uh, what's it called? Salzstangel? Oh, yeah, Salzstangel, yeah. Yeah, yeah Salzstangel. <laughs> you know, we'll, uh, the, the opera, beer. Uh, this is a man who wanted to bring the best of Europe to the Middle East and who saw no moral problem with this, very much in keeping with his era. He was a quintessential European who believed that European civilization was um, technologically, culturally superior to that of the Orient. He thought that colonialism was a good thing. He thought colonialism spread culture to the world. Uh, he saw the Jewish presence in Palestine as benevolent. He believed that it would bring benefit to a population of Arabs whom he simply did not see as a collective with any desires, needs, rights of their own. He just took it for granted that they were not many of them and that they would be welcoming of, of you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews. Uh, he, was, he was very much a European, and this was something which was a entree for him when he had his many meetings with great European leaders, whether it's the uh, King of Italy or the King of Bulgaria or the Pope or the Kaiser of Germany the emperor of Germany, the, the, the English colonial secretary. I mean, Herzl managed, mainly because of his journalistic uh, reputation, to meet with some of the world's most important European leaders. And uh, they had a common language, literally a common language that he could speak. When he met with the Ottoman sultan, they, they, they always spoke French. Uh, obviously, when he met with uh, English leaders, he spoke in England, which in English, which, which wasn't perfect. But he, he felt at home in France, in Austria, in England. Uh, he was very much a European with all of the positive and negative attributes of what it meant to be a self-confident European upper bourgeois of that era. Um, in the book's epilogue, you talk about Herzl's legacy in modern-day Israel. And you note that um, Israel's national shrine, you call it Mount Herzl, has been since 1967 overshadowed by what we might call Judaism's national shrine, so the Western Wall. Mm -hmm. Has Herzl and his memory become anachronistic for modern-day Israel? It's a really interesting question about what happens to <clears throat> great founders of national movements or of states, what in the United States one does with the memory of Lincoln. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was just invoked by the American president a couple of days ago. Donald Trump said that Abraham Lincoln got you know better press or something than, than Donald Trump has gotten. Um, so people refer back to great political leaders for all kinds of reasons, and read them in different ways. And uh, Herzl was, became very quickly in his own lifetime and shortly thereafter uh, a symbol of Zionism. And I've tried to figure out what that means to be a symbol of Zionism. I think what it means is that he exemplified dignity, honor, pride, 
self-worth. These were emotions. I'm writing a book now called Zionism and Emotional State. It's very much about the history of Zionism through the lens of emotion. Herzl gave Jews what they were looking for, and he symbolized to the Jewish world aspirations, again, for a pride and self-worth, because Herzl himself and his posture and his speech and his writing and his, his dignity was very important. And that survived the creation of the state of Israel. Herzl, as a symbol, continued for many decades to fill that role. But he was anachronistic because he was, a, as we've been talking about, he was a fin de siècle bourgeois European. He was not a Palmach fighter in khakis with a gun. He was not a, an Israeli soldier. He was not a kibbutznik. He didn't symbolize the pioneering spirit of the state of Israel. Um, and so he began to become a, a symbol with increasingly vapid <clears throat> content. Now, today in Israel, people read into Herzl <clears throat> sort of what they want to see. So if, if one belongs to the national religious camp, the pro-1967 camp, as it were, the, the post-67 camp that exults in the uh, Israeli um, acquisition of the occupied territories, settlement of the West Bank, and so forth. Herzl appears to be a messianic figure, who he was, he was seen as such sometimes in his own lifetime. Uh, the fact that Herzl himself did, he, he never became an observant Jew, but he certainly wrote about Judaism in respectful terms in his political career as a Zionist. Um, <clears throat> he did seek alliances with Orthodox Jews. And so there are people today on the right wing of the Israeli spectrum who say he was one of us. He understood the extent of anti-Semitism. He understood the Jews must have a state in their ancient holy land. Um, <clears throat> and he, he appreciated the, the, the beauty of, of, of Judaism. What these people are missing, of course, is that Herzl was himself quite secular. And that in his novel, Old New Land, there's no state. Uh, there's no army and there's no borders. Herzl actually rarely talked about the need for a sovereign state. He usually wrote about a province of the Ottoman Empire or a protectorate under European control. He actually was not obsessed with sovereignty, even though a lot of people on the Zionist right uh, or the Zionist center will claim that today. On the other hand, then the Zionist left today says that Herzl was a great advocate of um, humanism, uh, social democracy, and equality between Jews and Arabs. Well, Herzl was not a kibbutznik. Herzl was a capitalist. Herzl believed in private property. He was not a socialist. As far as Jews and Arabs, it is very true that in his novel, Old New Land, one of the major characters is a Palestinian, a Palestinian who is quite comfortable with and pleased by the presence of Jews in the, uh, in the country. But on the other hand, as I mentioned, Herzl, uh, he didn't really think about Palestinians as having needs or desires or, or rights of their, uh, of their own. And uh, he was not a bi-nationalist in any sort of 21st century sense of the word, because he didn't really think of Palestinians as a nation with, with national needs. So I would say that Herzl is probably a bit closer to the way that leftists today view him than the way people on the right view him. But everyone is reading into Herzl what they want. Everyone is seeing in him a kind of palimpsest of the Zionism that they believe in. And Herzl himself made that happen. 
Herzl created that image of himself. He, like so many great leaders in history, he fashioned an image of himself as a Moses figure, as even a messianic figure, but also as a embodiment of liberal, progressive, fantasiacle European values. He essentially made himself to be all things to all people. People read into him what they wanted, and that was the secret of his charisma. Good point. And and it kind of prompts me to ask one further, perhaps cynical question then. 72 years after the fact, has Israel become das Alt-Neuland or das Neue Ghetto? In some respects, it's it's a little bit of both. I would say it's it's more like Alt Neuland in terms of its technological sophistication, and um, Herzl would have been quite pleased with you know the railways and the the freeways. He even writes uh, in his diaries about a future in which the Europe will be covered with with expressways and motor cars. So he, he predicted that he uh, would have been very excited by the ingathering of exiles, Jews from all over the world living in Israel. Uh, he would have loved the uh, much of the high culture of the country. I think he would have been very happy with the Tel Aviv Opera House. Uh, and yes, you can, by the way, you have very good Zalstangel in, in Israel. <laughs> That's right. And beer. That's and right. So you know, but there are many things about the material culture of the state of Israel and its political ambitions that, that 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 would have pleased him. On the other hand, I think he would have been despondent, deeply, deeply unhappy with uh, those aspects of the country that are Das Neue Ghetto, the new ghetto. The fact that the country, first of all, he, he, he was not anti-religious, but he was anti-clerical in the sense that he did not want a theocracy or rabbinocracy. And he writes... Uh, in the Jewish state, that the army will be kept in its barracks and the priests, or sorry, the, the rabbis will be kept in their temples. Uh, he would have been very unhappy about the role that Judaism plays in the Jewish state. He would have been very unhappy with his militarism because, again, the army was supposed to stay in its barracks and he envisioned a state where there would be no army and no wars to speak of. Uh, I think that the um, intractable uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict would have deeply, deeply concerned him. Herzl had paternalistic, condescending views towards uh, the Middle East, but I don't think he was a hateful man. He was not. Uh, I think he would not have been pleased by the relations between Israelis and Palestinians, the conquest of the West Bank, the occupation of the people. Uh, he writes about the British occupation of Egypt in a feuilleton in 1903, that he says, this is an enlightened occupation uh, because the British are doing so much good for the country. But then he also writes privately, after he meets young Egyptian men who are Egyptian nationalists, he writes privately, these men could could overthrow the empire. He, he does understand that there are forces from within Egypt that could mean an end to uh, imperialism. And I think he would be very unhappy, or he would be sympathetic, at least to some extent, to Palestinian uh, desires for self-determination of their own, because it it simply did not occur to him in his era that there were peoples in the world who were not Western, who had the same sort of self-determination drives, the same nationalistic aspirations as Europeans. But he was capable of learning. Herzl changed a lot over the nine years of his Zionist activity. He grew up a lot and he learned a lot. And I think that he would have understood 
that the values that he attributed to Europe need to be attributed to the rest of the world. Uh, now, again, how can we know? We can't bring him back from the dead. But after living with him for seven, eight years, just how long it took me to write this little book, I get the feeling that I know him. And uh, so you ask about bringing him back from the dead, which so far as I know is not possible. Uh, but I do think that he would he would have learned to see the world differently if he were here and could be you know, exposed to this very different world we live in. Uh, I think that he would continue to grow intellectually in, in, in a way that he did over his years of Zionist activity. So there are things about Israel he would absolutely love, but it would also pain him uh, very much as well. Derek Penciler, I feel I've monopolized your time enough for one morning. But before we go, could you please tell us what projects you're currently working on? I know you alluded to them very briefly a few minutes ago, but perhaps you'd oh, care I'm, to elaborate. There's a, a, a very nice series called uh, Keywords in Jewish Studies, published by uh, Rutgers University Press. They're li little books for general readers and for undergraduates about big big issues in, in Jewish studies, uh, centered around keywords like uh, there's a book on Judaism, there's one on anti-Semitism, there's one on the shtetl. I'm doing the one on Zionism, and I'm centering it around the history of emotions, which I think is a very important way to understand political movements. So I have chapters on love and pride and hatred and uh, fear and so on. So I hope, hopefully it's a new way to deal with a, a familiar subject. And then I want to do a monograph, uh, a global history of the 1948 war which has been written about mainly in terms of the protagonists uh, on, in, in the field. But it, it was a war that had global consequences and it attracted global attention. And I'm very interested in doing a study of how the various parties who supported or opposed partition in 1947 and then their views uh, during the 1948 war itself. I think it'll be a fun way to approach, again, a subject that's been well studied. Uh, but I don't think anyone's tried anything quite like this. Indeed. Derek Pensler, thank you once again very much for your time and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Peter.